Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be uh, finishing up 2 Corinthians 9 today. Uh, we've been in this series called Rhythms of Grace, and we're looking at the last two verses in uh, this chapter 9. And so if you're not familiar with looking up Scripture either on your phone or whatever, most of the uh, pieces of Scripture will be on the screen behind me. In this series, we've been talking about, again, this idea of grace and what it is. It's big concept that we hear in Christendom or in church It's just a word that's used over and over again. And we said, let's take a minute and actually figure out what this means and how it actually plays out in our life. Far too often we say, oh, you know, I've received the grace of God or God was gracious to me. It was like there's something that happened in the past, some moment that I get to look back on and say, that's when it happened. But from now on, I'm having to live out of my own strength or deal with my own problems. And maybe someday in the future, God will be gracious to me again. If you think about that, relationships don't work that way. I mean, Katie and I got married almost 27 years ago, well, just over 27 years ago. And I can look back to a moment, to a day that we got married. And that, that event that she was very gracious to make a commitment to spend her life with me. But the truth is that has played out every day since then. It wasn't just a moment in the past. It's been this ongoing rhythm and impact in my life. Every day of my life has been impacted since that day because of the decision and the grace we showed to each other to enter into a relationship together. And this is what the grace of God is. It is not just the moment of salvation. It wasn't just a moment that God came through for you. It has been this ongoing process. And that's why we call it this rhythm of grace, kind of this heartbeat in our life, these beats of grace that have been playing out in our life and should play out and impact the lives of other people as well. And we've been working through this chapter to kind of give us this picture and perspective. When we talked about grace begins with generosity, a willingness to give, to see somebody in need, and to do something, to give something, have something that you can do. And we've used this image of a, a bit like kind of being stuck in a pit. And, and generosity is, is, you know, at the very least, seeing somebody in need and throwing them a piece of bread giving them something to help them in that point of need. But we talked about grace doesn't just stop there. It's then also responding. And as we respond out of this abounding grace that we've been given, we actually help get them out of the pit. We drop the ladder down. We get down there and help them not just throw them a piece of bread down there, but get them out of that pit of despair. And we actually respond. We do something Not just a tangible one act, but this process of moving them toward a healthier situation, which led us to the third part of what grace is. We started a couple weeks ago and beginning to advocate for this person and helping them begin to harvest righteousness in their own lives, to teach them what it means to grow so that they don't move back into the pit, but they start moving forward away from the pit. And then last week, we talked about camaraderie and worship and expressing thanksgiving and giving them something to anchor their life to that keeps them from going back in the pit. And that anchor is not us. The anchor is Christ. The anchor is Jesus. It's helping connect them to the source of grace that we're connected to. So even when bad times come, it's not just looking for somebody else. They're looking to the true source of grace. And We've been in this process, and now we get to this last beat of this rhythm of grace that Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians 9. Look at these two verses with me, verses 14 and 15. It says, this will happen. It says, they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. 
Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. As this chapter comes to a close, Paul helps us to understand this final aspect of grace fully expressed in this idea. If we continue this metaphor of the pit, it's grace begins with this generosity and all the things we just talked about. And it's not just even connecting them through camaraderie to Christ. The final step of grace it talks about here, and this is that they will begin to long for you and pray for you, is that we will actually begin to entangle our lives with other people. So in such a way that even if you find yourself in a pit of despair again, you will not find yourself there alone. You will have already intertwined and intertangled your life with somebody and some people. And no matter what you're going through, there is a community to walk through this together with. This is one of the major functions of the church. This is why we do this. This is what Danielle and Abraham were talking about. It is this idea of intertwining, connecting our lives together. And I love the way Paul says it. He says, they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God. Now, this idea of longing for one another you know, this concept we're going to focus on this morning, and I don't know about you, but like when I hear that, what comes to mind are like these doe-eyed teenagers, right? Like out on a date together, they're like first time, like they know they like each other, and they just start longing for each other. Like they just sit and stare at each other's eyes deeply so that they can be known and that they'll know them and they'll write in their journals about it. Like I remember when Katie and I first started dating, I mean, one of our spots was like her parents' house had this front porch, and there was a swing on the front porch. And like we would just sit and stare at each other. There was no better thing to do. Just, ah, oh, I love you. No, I love you. I love you. It's like this longing for one another and this depth that you want in a relationship. Now she just kind of stares at me and sometimes she goes, who are you? Do I still? Like, what are? And we just have these weird moments now. But it's this longing. And as much as this is part of what it is, there's a breadth of this that is beyond just the romantic nature of love. This word longing here can be translated to desire, pursue, to want, or even to develop. It is this idea of connecting and strengthening and deepening, deepening a relationship. This is why I use the word entangle because it is so intertwining our lives, they almost become inseparable. I remember a couple of years ago, I was volunteering at a uh, clothing closet up in the Queensbridge, Queensbridge Plaza area. And one of the things we came in, we were delivering clothes and doing all this stuff. And they said, we have a project for somebody who has some patience. And somehow I got volunteered for that project. I'm not sure why, because I'm not really patient. It's not my strong suit. But they sent me to this back room. And there was this box. I mean, it was probably this tall, this wide. It was full of hangers. Not like in a nice, orderly manner. Like just jammed in there. Like I think I could have picked one up and every one of them would have come out of the box. And my job for the next couple of hours was separating these hangers into individual and hang them on a rack. And I'm thinking, why didn't this happen to begin with? All these reasons were going. But I, when I think about entangling, it is this idea that, you know what? Our lives are so connected that when something gets pulled on one of us, everybody feels it. Everybody's connected. And even though we're separate and if we work hard enough, we can separate and detach ourselves. The truth is we are so intertwined and so connected that this longing and this developing for these relationships with one another means that something cannot happen to you without me feeling it. And something can't happen to me without you feeling it. And when we share this common bond of, here we go, grace together that leaves this indelible 
mark on our life. And that word indelible is so important to me because I, I think, you know what, I, I look back over my years of living and there are certainly people I've been closer to at times over the years than I am now and people I'm closer to now that maybe in 10 years I won't be as close to and we have all these relationships that we can look back on and have history with. And even still today, those relationships have put indelible marks on me. I'll get a call or I'll see something on Facebook or see somebody experiencing something or hear something through a parent or another friend and my heart still tugs toward them, whether it's a victory or a hurt or whatever it is. This girl that I went to high school with, I haven't seen her in, in years. We went to church together. We were close friends in high school. And right now, just six months ago or 60 days ago, she got news that her 22-year-old son has inoperable and incurable cancer. And when I got this news through Facebook, my heart broke. I mean, it was that pull immediately back because we had spent time, our lives had been entangled, and I still hurt and now hurt with her and want to support her in any way that we can. And you probably have examples of that. People you haven't heard from in years, but as soon as something happens in their life, you feel that heart connection still, that indelible mark that just kind of leaves, in a good way, a scar on you. It's there. They did something and you did something where your lives are so intertwined, you will always feel it together. This kind of scar that we carry. And what I want us to do today is to explore this this morning. How do we explore how this happens in our life? This opportunity to grow deep into relationships with each other. So when we find ourselves deep in a pit, we're not alone. When we find ourselves at the crest of a mountain of victory in our lives, we're not alone. There is this entanglement of our lives with other people that strengthen us, encourage us, and allow grace to fully flow in us. There's a pretty famous passage of scripture that kind of lays out this roadmap of this kind of connecting deep meaningful relationship, the kind of blessing that where both people are experiencing and they're honoring God as well. And it's a passage in Matthew called the Great Commission. Now, if you've been around church much, the last chapter of Matthew, one of the very last things Jesus has says is the Great Commission. It's kind of his last words on earth, some of the very last things he says. And I don't know about you, but like growing up, I always thought this was like one of those monumental moments in history. Like, you know, Jesus is standing on the mountain. There's just thousands of all these people around that had followed him. And in his big booming voice, he's like, go make disciples of all the nations. And he goes, it's like a pep rally. And he's like cheering them on. And as soon as they're done, man, they just start running down the mountain toward Jerusalem and the ends of the world. And they're just there to take over. I mean, it's like this giant pep rally right before Jesus leaves this earth. But when you actually read this passage, it's something very different. It's a very different environment that this happens. Look at Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. It says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some some doubted. Now let me give you the picture before we even read it further. There was no giant crowd. It was the eleven remaining disciples. Judas had hung himself. It was just the 11 remaining disciples. This was in Galilee. It was way far away from Jerusalem. It was back where they originally started all this. It wasn't, you know, where he had the triumphant entry. It wasn't on the Mount of Olives. It wasn't this huge. It was up in Galilee, way away from all the, the trappings of Jerusalem and the big moment. It's this small gathering 
where he gives this incredible teaching, one of his last teachings, and he says this, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. This amazing moment in Scripture happened with just 12 people present. Jesus had pulled his remaining disciples together one last time to give them clear instructions, and he's basically saying this, Look, you guys have been the recipients of this grace I've been pouring into your life for the past three years. Now it's time for you to go and pour that grace into other people's lives. Take what we just did and go do it for somebody else. The way that I've connected my life to yours, go now and connect your life to others in the same way. Go and make disciples the way I made disciples of you. I love the idea that Jesus made this command, this great commission, personal. This commission didn't start with giant crowds that had followed Jesus at some point, or even like the surrounding town. It was just a handful of followers that Jesus had poured into. Jesus was telling them to take this intimacy, this depth, this longing, this intertwining of our hearts that we've experienced in our lives and go share it, let other people see it so that they will long for you and desire to be in a relationship with you just like you have longed to be with me. This great commission I want you to hear because it's often used as this appeal to like go to the, go save the world. Go make sure everybody's a Christian. And while it's a call to go be the gospel and take the gospel to places, this great commission is not a call for broad, impersonal, evangelistic conversion strategies. Instead, it is a call to entangle your life with people in such a way that the grace of God cannot help but flow from your life into theirs. That's the Great Commission. It's not standing on a mountain and shouting at people. It's getting down and getting involved in their life so that it can't help that the grace that you've experienced would flow naturally into their life. So how does this teaching of Jesus help us to understand what it means to develop depth in relationships? Let's look at a few things this morning. The first one is in verse 19. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples. The first thing we have to do is we have to be willing to make room for new connections. The first thing that Jesus has teach his disciples and us to do here is always remember to make room for new connections in our lives. It is the heart behind the word go. Think about it for a minute. What would have been the easiest thing and the most natural thing for these 11 followers of Jesus to do? It would have been to stay huddled together, to grab arms with one another and fill all their relational needs and connections that they needed with one another. But Jesus busts up this Christian clique before it can even get started. He's like, this is not what you're supposed to do. Jesus tells his followers, look, you have done life together for these three years, and it doesn't mean that you still can't be friends. But it is time to invite some other people into this circle. For many of us, this is hard to do. Instead of making room for new connections, as soon as we get enough relationships in our lives to satisfy our emotional needs, we shut down our willingness to make new connections. We kind of close the door. We create our own little holy huddle and then keep everybody else out. Maybe not on purpose, not in a mean way. We just don't open our hearts to any new people. The sad thing is this doesn't just happen in our lives as individuals. I've seen churches that call themselves evangelistic or outreach-oriented They keep no room for new relational connections. They just keep people busy hanging around the same group of people. I've even seen church plants that have have 
no room for new people that they need to survive and to grow because they're so focused on creating their own holy huddle that they cut themselves off from reaching new people. In environments like this, you'll hear things like, you know, well, we need to make sure we're really serious about God before we talk to anybody else. Or we need to make sure we're all on the same page. Or we're all healthy enough in our own relationships before we invite anybody else new in. Can I tell you, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus is telling us to do here. Think about it for a moment. These disciples of Jesus were in a pretty vulnerable position. The entire religious community was out to destroy them and get rid of them. The, the Roman Empire was out to, to marginalize them and to push them aside. They wanted nothing to do with Christianity at the time. They were not in a position of strength. And this passage even says that some of them still doubted Jesus. I mean, he's gone. He's resurrected from the dead. He's appeared to them. He's talked to them. He's standing in front of them. And some of them are like, you know, I don't know. I just don't know if this is, I'm not sure. I mean, they've still got these. They weren't all in this healthy, great place. And he doesn't say, I love, he doesn't say, all right, guys, let's take a three-week retreat. Take ourselves and make sure we're all healthy and good and nobody's got any problems or issues. And then we'll go out. He said, no. He's like, look. I know you guys. I know some of you don't even think I, I am who I say I am. Like you got doubts. You don't even know what, what's going to happen tomorrow. But here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Go. Open up. Make new connections. Make room for new people in your life. And this is what will actually help you overcome your doubts. It is what will help strengthen you. It is what will grow you in your faith. The idea is this. When we are allowing new relationships to be formed in our life, it's easier for us to get healthier. It's easier for us to grow instead of becoming stagnant. The idea is this. It's a picture of a stagnant pond versus a freshwater pond. It's this image that if you close off water, don't let any fresh water in, it grows dirty and dead and it kills everything around it. But when fresh water flows in, it brings life. It brings healing. It brings life to everything around it. Where are you allowing new relationships to be formed at in your life? To new, healthy, to flow in instead of growing cold, stagnant, and bitter water in your life. The second thing he says here is in the second part of verse 19, and it says this. Not only go, therefore, and make disciples, but he says do it of all nations. The second thing that you have to make room for is you have to make room for distinctions in your life. Relational Distinctions. Look at what he says here. Go to all nations. I love Jesus. But man, sometimes he makes it hard. Sometimes it's like, all right, why didn't you just tell me? Like, go to your, the people that look like you, think like you, act like you, everything, you know, the people that you have most in common with. Just go to those people and invite them into your life. You know, it's bad enough that he asked me to invite some new people into my life, but then he asked me to add some really strange and weird people into my life. He's like going to all the nations. Go to people that you don't even know. You might not even speak their language, understand their culture, understand their customs. You will feel out of place. You will be the minority. You are not the one who are setting the standard. You are going to go to very uncomfortable, difficult, and dark places. All nations. But he says, Go. Bring distinctiveness and distinctions into your life. We all struggle with this. We like to surround ourselves with people that are like me, have the same upbringing, the same passion and things that I'm about. They have this, maybe the same ethnic group or socioeconomic standing. 
Maybe we have a broad group of connections and we say, you know, I, I know a lot of people, but it's actually very shallow because the type of people I know is no different. I'm connected to a lot of people, but a lot of the same kind of people. No distinctions. Why is this important? Because at our core, I want you to hear this. We are not complete. You say, well, you don't, you don't know me well enough, Patrick. Like, I am the, I'm the whole package. Like, you know, I, you just need to get to know me a little better. But, you know, as much as we like to think that about ourselves, it's just not true. I have a limited perspective on this life. I've only experienced the life, this life the way that I have grown up, the way that I have experienced. You've experienced it in a totally different way. Someone here experienced in a, almost a, a way that I can never fathom or understand. And maybe I, the way I've experienced in my life, you can never fathom or understand. And we have to have these distinctions and these perspectives in our life, different experiences, different understandings, so I can see multiple ways. So I can kind of, there are things, there, there's a saying, there's, a, there's stuff that you know, there's stuff that you know you don't know. Like I, I, I know, understand, like, that there's some kind of knowledge out there about how plane flies and all the dynamic, but I, I don't know all of that, but I know that I don't know it. But then there's knowledge out there that I don't know that I don't know. Stuff that I haven't even been exposed to, that I can't understand the perspective on it all. And that's actually the vast majority of knowledge that I need to understand. It's not a small segment. It is the largest segment. A life without distinction can be dangerous. It can be very dangerous because we start to think that this way is the only way. And we start asking and expecting other people to come to our way. And when they don't, we get angry at our set of them. And we're just going to use an example I know, and it's Christianity. Christians, especially white American Christians, have often equated following Jesus to following the white Christian Jesus that we have created. You know the picture. Beautiful blonde hair, blue eyes, smiling face. Can I tell you, Jesus looked nothing like that. Nothing like that. He, he was a Middle Eastern Hebrew man. Like, that's not the picture of, of who Jesus is. I, I am much different from Jesus than than anything, like it is not this white Jesus that we worship. And here's what we do in Christianity. Sometimes we have taken this picture, made Jesus like us instead of making us like Jesus, and now we expect everybody else to conform to our Jesus, to white Jesus. And if you don't, you don't understand who Jesus really is. And it's a limiting person. And that, just that one thought in itself, has probably launched more wars than anything else. In our world. It's a very distinct thing when we don't bring distinctive things into our life. And the key thought I want you to develop is this. Any distinctive relationship in your life, what it does is it breaks this closed loop in your life. This idea that sometimes we just walk in circles and we think we're going somewhere. We just keep going round and round with the same people think the same way that I do, and we have this closed loop that never gets broken into, and when we see something that is not like what the only thing I've experienced, it seems odd, weird, and foreign, and not right. So it can't be right. And if I'm a Christian, it can't be godly. And this is why having distinct, this is why he says go to all nations. Not to colonize nations, not to turn them into what we are, but to allow Christ and the gospel to penetrate their culture the same way it did the culture of the Jewish people in that day. The same way it's penetrated cultures throughout history. We don't have to go and make disciples like us. We have to go and make disciples like Christ. And we need to stop walking 
in circles. The third thing that he lays out here is in verse 20, and it says this. He says, after we make disciples, he said, we should teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And this is what it means. It actually means we've got to make room for multiplication in our life. The last thing we see is, is we, this loop should never, once we open it up, the loop should never close in our life. Sometimes we think that, well, cat, I got a couple of people that are different from me walking in my circle and now. All right, that's enough. We'll close the circle again. We'll feel comfortable. But that's not what Jesus says. It's about growing, expanding all the time. When he tells us to go and teach them to observe all that he has commanded, if we do this and we teach this, it's not just about teaching the, the things like do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. It also means teaching this teaching, which means to go. That at some point, people that I've been pouring into, people that I've been discipling in my life, need to go and start doing what I've been creating their own relationship circles and multiplying out. That I understand that I may not be, I may not be able to spend as much time with that person because they're spending time with other people. Doesn't mean we're not friends anymore. Doesn't mean we're not close anymore. It just means that, that we're following the commands of God. We often think of a church as a place that we can come, grow, sit forever, and just keep growing more and more. Like a school that never graduates anyone. I just come and learn and soak it all in. But the truth is, the way that Jesus designed this, is that one day, if we teach the whole of Scripture, as I teach, as you teach, as you pour into people's lives, people will move out from under our teaching and begin to, the process of going and teaching others themselves. There's a great quote, and I think Rick Warren is the one who said it. I didn't look it up, but it's, a church is not valued by its seating capacity it's valued by its sending capacity. Of actually not how many can we just gather and hold on to. The true church of Jesus Christ, the true grace playing out in our life, is one that we will send people out. And that doesn't mean we have to send you necessarily to a foreign country or somewhere completely different. It just may mean that you stop hanging out with just who's in here and you find some new friends to connect with and reach and pour your life into as well and expand this circle just means we're not a closed group or a closed loop. One of the struggles of life is allowing relationships to grow in such a way that you can give room for multiplication. We open our lives to someone, we invest in them, we teach them, we grow with them, we cry with them, we celebrate with them, and then we have to make room for them to go out and do that same thing with other people, which means we might not do everything together like we once did. We might not be as close as we once were, but this is how multiplication, multiplication of the Great Commission is accomplished. To untangle our lives with someone that means that at some point down the road, we must untangle in such a way that they have some loose ends to connect with other people, not remain completely intact. Have you ever had, or maybe you've been, that friend that kind of always has to be the center of the relationship? You, they always have to be with you. They get jealous if you do something with somebody else and you don't invite them. They get angry if they feel like you're spending more time with somebody else other than them. They often try to isolate the friendship from others, breaking in and getting a piece of what they have. Behavior like this, even though it's intended to protect a friendship, will actually kill a relationship. If you don't allow environment for multiplication and growth, then love, grace, peace, that you carry in your life will die in a closed circle instead of multiplying. 
This isn't about having so many relationships in our lives that we don't know what to do and we can't remember people's names and every day you have to have somebody new coming into your life. The image is this. Have you ever been to a campfire? It's like putting one more log on the fire to keep the fire going. If you don't add a new log in, guess what? The fire's going to die. It's eventually going to go out. And this idea that we always have to be willing to allow one more log to come onto our fire. To have this new person added in. We've got to leave that room and, and allow people to even take a piece from our fire and go start a new fire. And let it grow from there. Today, we're going to close our service with one of the ways that Jesus gave us to share our lives with one another and invite depth into relationships. And it's through the act of communion. If you've never taken communion with us uh, before in a minute, uh, I'm going to invite you down. I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this today. But you, we have bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and sacrificed for our sins. And then we have the juice that you dip it into that is representative of the blood of Christ that was shed for us as, a, as an atonement for our sins so that we can have peace with God. It's designed for those uh, who, have, who have surrendered their life to Christ and follow Christ. But it's open to, to anyone, whether you're a member of this church or or if you're in just visiting from out of town, if you say, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, that you're welcome to the table. But as much as the table is a remembrance of who Jesus is, many times, and it's okay when we do this, we'll come somber, we'll come quiet, we'll come alone to the table and have a, mem- a remembrance with God, a quiet moment with God. And today I want us to try, I'm going to challenge us to do this a little differently. I'm going to ask you to today not come to the table alone, that you would look around this room and you would say, you know what, there's somebody in here I don't know, that maybe I could do that first step today and make a new connection. doesn't mean that you're promised to be pen pals for the rest of your life. It just means that you're like, hey, you know what, we have this, at least this in common together. What if we could share a moment around the table, maybe pray with one another or get to know each other's names and just take that initial step of opening up and making a new connection. Maybe there's somebody in here that you want to say, you know what, you're very different from me. You look around and they're like, this is a, you know, just you're very distinct from who I am and I'm distinct from who you are and I may not understand who you are and how you got here and all these kind of things, but I, I want to invite that into my life. Maybe you look around this room and say, hey, there's somebody that would just be distinctive from me that I can come and share that with, invite that together. Or maybe there's a close friend in here, somebody you've done life with, a long time, even spouse and family, and you say, you know what? We can do this together, but as we do this, we're making a commitment to multiply. To not do this with the same person next time. Say, I'm willing to say, I want to add another log to the fire and commit one another to do that. So please don't come to the table alone today. Take initiative. Make an invitation to someone here this morning to join you. You're not, again, you're not committing to lifelong relationships in this one moment. But you are committing to say, I'm willing to make room, connect with somebody distinctive for me, or being willing to multiply. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And after our pray, Drew's going to come and begin to just play some music underneath. And, and as that's happening, I'm going to invite you to stand and invite somebody to come to the table with you to come and get a piece of bread, dip it in, and maybe go over together. If you need to introduce one another, that's fine. Take the bread and the juice together. And then if somebody in there would just voice maybe a quick prayer and say, 
Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for this moment. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer, but just a prayer of thanksgiving. And then share this moment together and let it be something that puts this teaching, this picture of grace, of taking somebody from a pit all the way to connecting them with Christ and then multiplying that out in our lives. Join me as we pray. Father, I am so grateful for the truth of your grace that I have experienced in my life. And God, there is a temptation to just hold on to it, to hold it closely and to guard it. But you're very clear that the more I do that, the more it just seems to slip out and I, it seems like it's not there. But the way to truly experience your grace is to give it away to others, to let it be multiplied, to share it with people I don't know, to brand new people, to people that are different from me and people that I'm very dear friends with. God, the grace is abundant for all of those. So God, as we come to this moment this morning, as we come to these tables, and even in just maybe the awkwardness of this moment of like, who am I going to talk to and who am I going to, it will physically help us to understand how this needs to happen. That it's part of our journey to step out and to multiply, to go. And let us go this morning, even if it's just across an aisle or down an aisle or two or just to somebody that I don't even know and say, would you share this moment with me? God, allow us to go this morning in this room so that we understand what going means even more as we leave this room. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.